This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Now you're welcome to another episode of Business Impact, and we are here in the Business School at UCD. We are nearing a summer break. Exam scripts are being marked, grades are being finally checked, rechecked, and rechecked, and travel plans, going abroad or otherwise, are being finalised. We'll maybe scratch that last one if you look at the pictures at Dublin Airport, but there are, of course, staycations, although maybe scratch that when you look at the price of hotels at the moment. But we have reached Season 2, Episode 17. Yes, Episode 17. And you want to talk about diversity? Well, look at keywords. I did a little search, a little research exercise before this podcast began. And these are some of the topics that we've covered since we started at the start of term. Cryptocurrencies, lifelong learning, globalization, women's sport, blockchain, energy as a service, asset management, economic modeling, consumer behavior, energy prices, no surprise, sustainability, social media, working and living in Asia, climate change, the retail store, of tomorrow and the business of education. Now that is diversity in podcast form. Amazing event of um, topics we've covered. Thanks to all our contributors who have each one of them brought those alive and really put um, a human personality behind some of those concepts which are in the media a lot but don't necessarily get talked about in detail. And diversity of a different type is what we're going to be teasing out on today's episode. Our guest is Colin McLaughlin. He's the Professor of Employment Relations here at UCD School of Business. His research is comparative and institutional in nature. He looks at employment relations with a particular focus on the effectiveness of different systems of regulation in protecting employment standards. He also holds two interesting positions, co-director of the UCD Centre for Business and Society and the UN Principles for Responsible Management Education. He's the coordinator here for the college. Now, if that wasn't enough, he's also the VP for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion for the college. He is a University of Cambridge graduate and has a degree from the University of Auckland. He previously worked in the UK local authority scene and in the hotel business, and more of that anon. What we're hoping to talk about today is possibly seismic changes that are happening in Ireland's largest workplaces in relation to who gets paid what, what they get paid for, and particularly looking at what the implications are for gender in the workplace. We'll also broaden that discussion out into who runs larger organisations at a leadership level, how diverse is this pool of people, where do they come from, and how do they manage their decision-making processes and those organisations that they lead. So you're very welcome along to the podcast, Colin McLaughlin. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks, Emmett. Great to be here to talk to you about these issues. Yes, uh, just a little bit about your personal background, because I always like to place an accent. You, you are sort of a, a Irish ancestry and ethnicity, but you come all the way from New Zealand. Your parents went out there to work, and you've worked your way all the way back, which has been an interesting uh, personal story. Yes, I have, yes. Uh, so I started off, um, originally born in England, actually, to Irish parents and emigrated in the 70s to New Zealand. So, um, you know, the accent gives me away. New Zealand is uh, where I'd consider home, and Kind of ended up in Ireland by accident in around 2007 and, and haven't left. So, um, you know, this, this is now my home. And you came in 2007, as you say, just as the financial crash was happening. You must have been a bit nervous about your, your timing at that particular moment. I was. I missed I miss the party. As I point out to my students, <laughs> my arriving in the financial crash, there's no causation there. So, uh, but um, it was certainly an interesting time uh, to arrive and to see what was going on. And, 
you know, and it's it's been an interesting kind of fifteen years in Ireland, hasn't it, with with uh, the recession, recovery, uh, COVID. Yeah, well, when we when we have a crisis here, we we go big, you know. We we don't uh, we don't downscale whatsoever. But let, talk to me a little bit. Like I talked about your biography there. The, the hotel management and hotel industry is one that sticks out because because it is quite different to some of the other things you've done. But that was actually what led you into a, a certain sense, at least, into these areas of diversity and equality in the workplace. Just give me um, an example of how those two connected up, because you were telling me in preparation for this podcast, there was a little conversation you had once in the, the hotel business that sort of uh, sparked an interest. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when I first left school, I went to hotel school and um, you know got on the graduate re- uh, recruitment program at, at uh, what was, was then New Zealand's uh, kind of top hotel chain. And, um, you know, I thought I was, uh, I was young, I was, uh, I suppose, confident is the word. We'll talk about confidence later on, but I was confident um, going places. And, uh, you know, I got the top job uh, at the end of that and was feeling good about myself. And then one morning I was having coffee with the general manager and uh, a woman walked by. She was the uh, graduate uh, recruitment person on, on the graduate program that, that year. So, you know, she was a year behind me, if you like. And he, uh, he turned to me and he said, um, no, I'd never give her a job because she'll get pregnant in a few years and what a waste of training. Um, now, that, now, that was the late 1980s, so it was of it, one could say it was of its time. But the, the thing what stuck with me is the feeling of actual uh, deflation, you know, that suddenly I was thinking, okay, well, am I as good as I think I am or am I here because, you know, I'm not a woman? And, you know, so it kind of really got me thinking about, uh, you know, about issues of, of gender equality. Um, now, I didn't study gender equality until quite some time later. I did my PhD in Cambridge, as you uh, talked about, uh, around low-paid workers. So that probably was my connection to the hotel industry. You know, I was kind of interested in low-paid workers and bargaining power and, and low pay. Um, and as I was finishing my PhD, a postdoc position came up in Cambridge, which I uh, got, which was about uh, gender equality. Uh, so this was uh, early 2007, and I worked on it for six months, and then I got the job at UCD later that year. But I continued to work on that project for the next uh, three or four years. And Colm, you obviously have an interest in the workplace trends, who gets to work in certain roles, who gets promotion, who gets preferred, who gets the gains, I suppose, that are, are shared out across a workplace. Would that be the, the kind of thread that links up all your different research interests? Yeah, I think that would be about right. Yeah, sort of looking at fairness in the workplace, um, you know, employment rights, um, you know, issues of of power, power inequalities, bargaining and so on. Um, So, yeah, that would certainly be the common common thread across my research. And in in the time you've been studying these areas, the, 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 the workplace is obviously radically changing in many respects. In other respects, it hasn't changed. It's kind of frozen. So I suppose it depends whether you workplace is a very amorphous term there's different layers of management there's different sectors geography can make a difference you know the the, the american workplace looks different to the european workplace looks different to the british workplace is there any sort of broad trends you've kind of noticed in your time doing research like what what does the workplace look like are we seeing good positive things or some things more immutable what's your sense of that i think i think we're certainly seeing change there's no doubt about that you know one looks at even the last Five years, the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter uh, certainly put a, you know pushed a lot of momentum uh, around diversity in the workplace. But at the same time, there's you know still a long way to go. When you look at uh, data, for example, so I always start off uh, my lectures with students on this topic, sh- showing them the picture of of where things are. 
you know, these are commerce students, they want to be managers. And, um, you know, it was a study by the Chartered Management Institute in 2011, looking at the pay gap between male and female executives. You know, my students are really interested in that. And the gap was closing. That's the good news. But if you look at the trend, uh, the speed of the gap closing, uh, female executives would, ha- would have to wait 98 years to get the same pay as their male uh, executives. You know, so that was 10 years ago. So now it's only 88 eight years. Um, a recent study in the UK looking at pay trends across the whole labour market showed that the gap is narrowing, but it's going to take another 40 years before the pay gap closes. You know, so we've had equal pay legislation in Europe for since the 1970s. Um, your, actually your listeners may not know this, that in Ireland, equal pay legislation was first introduced in 1974 when Ireland entered the EEC. The reason it was brought in at that time is that the principle of equal pay for men and w- women is established in the Treaty of Rome. That's the 1957 document that you know, founded the EEC. Um, so that was why Irish Ireland brought in equal pay legislation. And it was the reason we, we were talking just the other day about the, the marriage bar and why the marriage bar was ended at, at about that point. You know, that was the, that when women got married in the public service and related uh, professions, they had to, had to cease work. They had to, you know, the, the woman's place was in the home. So things started to change from the 1970s. Um, but what we see is we see we saw that the, the most obvious uh, types of equal pay discrimination were ended. You know, men and women alongside each other doing the same job. Equal pay legislation got rid of those quite quickly. So there was quite a significant progress in narrowing the pay gap in the first 20 years. And after that, it's kind of slowed right down. Now it's more about the sort of systemic and subtle uh, differences in the, in the pay gap. So we know, for example, the average hourly earnings in Ireland Pay gap is 14.4%. You know, men on average earn 14.4% an hour more than women. And um, that's about the average for the EU. Um, but we know that that figure hides the difference between the public and the private sector. So it's much larger in the, the private sector. I don't have Irish data, but in the UK, the overall pay gap is around 15%. But in the private sector, it's 24%. You know, so there's a 9% gap there. So it's the, the public sector with its uh, trade union collective bargaining and its transparent uh, payment structures, you know, narrows the pay gap. Um, we also know that the pay gap is the largest at the top end of the distribution so among professional workers. Um, and when it comes to bonuses, uh, one Irish study found there was a pay gap of 50% for bonuses. Wow. So that's quite significant. And Colm, um, you've obviously highlighted the difference between public and private sectors. Do you have any sense of other sectors where you know, the kind of the kind of the, the, the worst sinners are like where, where is the is there particular sectors where it's very embedded this problem and is there sectors that are on the other end of the spectrum? Like is, is it to do with different industries or, or do you have any sense of the trends in that regard? I mean there's a range of factors there. Um we, we do know there are sectoral differences. Um so for example, finance the pay gap is is wider. Um it's a, a one study in the UK found a pay gap of forty percent in finance. Um, other other sectors, the pay gap is is narrower. Um, so there's a, when we start to talk about the pay gap, obviously people start to think about, talk about things like, well, where do women work, and and so so there are a range of factors that affect the pay gap, and you know it is a complex uh, issue. Well, I want I wanted to make just two two points. Sorry to interrupt you for a second. I'll come back to some of the trends, but obviously there, there's there's a deep irony here for two men on this podcast talking about these issues. But so let's just flag that. But maybe it's actually maybe it's actually a positive thing. But secondly. We, we talk about um, seismic change coming in this area and uh, our listeners will be saying, well, tell me, yeah, but what is the seismic change coming? But we let's just uh, outline that in June, um, at the time we're recording this, actually, 
there is new pay gap legislation in place. Companies will be facing new transparency rules. They will need to show what the pay gap is in their organisation. Colin, can you just talk us through what exactly is coming in in June for the first time? And if you think it's a big thing or you have less, uh, you're less excited about it, just give us some sense of what the changes are in the first place. Okay, so first thing, what you need to do, firms that are, have 250 more employees will have to report their gender pay gap. So they need to pick a date in June, one date, and then, uh, so on that date is kind of a snapshot. How many employees, you know, who works for your organisation? On that date, and six months later, you must report uh, your gender pay gap and publish it on your website. Um, uh, they've gone for two hundred and fifty large uh, firms first, two hundred and fifty plus employees. In two years' time, it will be, it will be firms of one hundred and fifty or more employees, and then by twenty twenty five, it will be firms of fifty or more employees. So they're going to you know narrowing it, uh, making it smaller as we go forward. So allowing large organisations with resources to kind of um, you know, to go first, see what how it works, see what mistakes are made, what we can learn from that. Now, there are a number of dimensions to the reporting, so including the mean and uh, median hourly pay gap, the mean and median bonus pay gap, uh, the mean and median pay gap for part-time employees, uh, the, me- the percentage of males and the percentage of females receiving a bonus, uh, the percentage of males and females receiving benefits in kind, um, and then the percentage of each gender that falls into the four quartile pay bands. So you'll start to see there the distribution of men and women across the organisation by pay, you know, who's in the top quartile and who's in the bottom quartile. Um, Firms must also publish a report setting out uh, in the employer's opinion the reasons for any differences they find and uh, measures being taken or proposed to be taken to eliminate or reduce such differences going forward. So that's the kind of legal requirement from uh, this year. in terms of what works, I think I think it's uh, it, it's going to help. Uh, let, there's no silver bullet to fixing the gender pay gap or to closing the gender pay gap. As I said, there's a range of um, reasons behind the gender pay gap, but this will certainly help. So one study from Denmark, which first introduced some kind of pay transparency legislation in 2006, um, found there was a 13% reduction in the pay gap over time. So um, you know, so that was a two percentage point difference. In if it was 13%, it went down to 11%. So um, that's quite significant. Um, and I think it's increasingly, so it was first actually introduced in Ontario in 1987 with mixed results. But again, we're kind of, you know, I think times have changed. And I think now the uh, the focus is much more important and, and firms are much more aware of their reputation and reputational risk and reputational damage. You know, you publish a, a pay gap of 30%, you know, that's going to put a spotlight on you. And I think... Um, you know, customers, employees, uh, even socially responsible investors, you know, are asking questions about these kind of things. Um, firms like to be high on the league tables, you know, great places to work or best places for women to work. They want to get the best employees. Um, human capital is seen as, you know, a very important part of competitive advantage. Um, and if you have to publicly report information that makes your company look bad, um, you know, there's a motivation to improve it or at least begin to examine why you have a pay gap, looking at your hiring practices, your promotion practices, your reward structures, um, you know, those kind of things. Um, where does where does the pay gap come in? Is it to do with the fact simply that um, men are promoted more than women? And then you can ask questions about that. Is it to do with starting practices? We know, for example, that men are more likely to ask for a higher salary when starting, okay? Um, and as an example, to give you an example to illustrate this. So this firm said, look, we don't have a pay gap. We're quite sure. We haven't measured it, but we're quite sure we pay fairly. 
And then later in the interview, I asked about this. You know, the, the literature says men bargain harder. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. This is the HR manager. Oh, they're always asking for more money. And so hypothetically, a male and a female, say with five years uh, computer programming experience, um, similar backgrounds, similar qualifications, how much of a difference could they make? And she said, oh, the male could easily get an, an, an extra £10,000 a year. These were people on about, you know, forty to £50,000 a year. So immediately you've introduced a pay gap there of around 20, 25%. And um, when I kind of pointed that out, she went, oh, I'm sure we could justify that down at an employment tribunal if we ended up there. You know, miss the bigger picture about this, this kind of practice. And, the, and then the question is, what exactly are you rewarding there when someone asks for more money? You've already decided, you know, their skills and experience and what the job is worth and you've made an offer. And now you're saying, well, just simply because they ask for more money, uh, you know, it's, it's not about their performance. It's, a, it's about you've decided you want this person. Uh, so you can see these kind of practices that, that uh, you know, where, where the different things, where the pay gap can be affected. And I suppose that that explains the the, the the differences between public and private, because in most cases, the public sector, the pay scales are published, you know, they're, they're verifiable, they're on a website, everyone gets the same for that particular grade. But in the private sector, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, isn't there? And, and who gets on with who? And it's essentially every person for themselves. It, it, does that, so is that where transparency comes in here? Is that why maybe the, the, this data that you're talking about, it could be so important? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I don't think there's the level of transparency that, you know, ideally you could have, because there is an argument that actually maybe everybody's salary should be published internally. Um, no, so this gender pay gap reporting isn't going to give that, you know, degree of, of insight. It's, it's, it's going to, you know, look at averages and, and so on at different bands. Um, but there is an argument that if you, if every salary was published, if every bonus was published internally, you would make as a manager, you'd make you know really sure that you could justify why this person got this and this person got something different. And in terms of the the, the method of publication, are these you say published? Are we talking about going into annual reports or in stock exchange disclosure? Where, where will this stuff actually surface? The requirement is that at the moment it needs to be published um, somewhere publicly on your website, easily accessible. Uh, there is. Uh, Talk that later on it'll be you'll also need to report to um, you know a government uh, department and that that you know there might be some uh, way of collating this information and, and enabling people to search and compare. Uh, but at the moment, that's the first step: is you must put them on your website, and then maybe I assume the, the media will will pick them up initially and start you know talking about different pay gaps as they get reported. Okay, well let's move the conversation a little bit broader. But that's definitely worth anyone who's a manager, anyone who owns a company. Obviously, there's an exception there. SMEs are below the 250. Uh, in, so, so what will happen there? Are they, are they going to eventually have to provide this data down the line, do you think? Yeah, so in two years' time, it'll be firms of 150 or more employees. And then three years' time, it'll be firms of 50 or more employees. So 50 will be the, will be the cutoff uh, in three years' time. So smaller firms have got more time to get ready for this and to look at how larger firms are doing it. And, you know, and maybe to get ahead and try and get rid of your... To narrow your pay gap before you need to publish it. Now, as as, as we introduced you, we talked. You, you look at a whole range of different areas about um, the effectiveness of different systems of regulating employment standards. So there are different ways to do this. There are more controversial quotas and so on in relation to there's there's board seats, which is is happening in Ireland. You do see progress there. There are different systems to try and make uh, get towards targets for gender equality. I mean, do you have a view on? 
where you'd place the pay gap data as against other methods or, you know, there must be a continuum there of this is effective, this less so, etc. Yeah, I think all these things add, add together. So we build a picture. I think there's, you know, there's no one silver bullet. So I think pay gap reporting is important. That, that will help. Um, that will only deal within organisations. Um, gender quotas is a more controversial topic than gender pay gap reporting. Um mainly because it challenges our ideas on meritocracy. You know, we'd like to think the best person gets the job. And then if you bring in quotas, it causes doubt about why someone got promoted or why someone got a board on a seat on the board. Um, and even the individuals concerned might, might doubt themselves as well. You know, think, I, did I only get this because of the quota? Am I the token woman or the token black person? Or, or is that how others perceive me? Um, so it's a very difficult um, issue. And whenever I ask my students, you know, most of them are against quotas. But then when I ask them, um, well, do you think the best person gets the job? And most of them don't, you know. So why do, what, what other factors affect who gets employed? Or, uh, you know, they say things like they'll point to gender. Uh, they know where, where you went to school makes a difference. They know family connections make a difference. Um, we know from research that women's skills and experience are undervalued. Um you know, again, talking about, you know, my experience in the hotel industry, that example we spoke about there, that some employers discriminate. Um, you know, I don't think many employers would say what uh, that employer said to me, but you know, many might think it. You know, so the argument in favour of quotas is that meritocracy isn't working very well. Um, quotas can correct, you know, injustice in the labour market and bring about change quickly. And so Norway led the way here um, for the first and achieved 40% of women on, on boards, you know, within a few years. And since then, we've seen that other countries follow it, France, Italy, Spain, Australia, Ireland, Germany, the, the Netherlands, you know. Um, again, none of these are perfect. Um, what we tend to find is that women are more likely to be in non-executive director roles on boards. Um, and there was initially in Norway talk about uh, this idea of the golden skirt, that it was the same women on lots of different boards. Yeah, well, that, that, that was kind of the, the, the thing I was going to come in on, because certainly personally from somebody who covered the financial crash, and you had a lot of these interlocking directorships and a lot of the same people, male and female, were popping up here, popping up there, friends of friends. Uh, so in other words, you might have been fulfilling a gender goal, but in terms of corporate governance goals or fresh thinking or, or breaking up groupthink, you, you sort of you had a, a similar problem that was even more stubborn to try and address. So is there an issue of a wider diversity? We must do better on male, female gender equality, but also just make boards generally more diverse. Is that something you have a view on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know diversity is better for decision making. Um, you know, when, when you have everyone the same, they think the same, you get the group think. Um, you know, there is evidence, uh, certainly in the financial crash, that firms with more diverse boards and more diverse management team, um, you know, didn't suffer to the same extent. You know, we know that uh, customers are expecting this. Um, you know, so our customers have expectations about our about firm behaviour. Uh, we know that employees expect this, and we talk about competitive advantage through recruitment and retention. There are all these factors. So there's, a, there's great research by this woman, Caroline Criado Perez, on the gender, uh, gender data gap, actually, which is really interesting here. And some of the examples there she gives, like modern technology, it's largely designed by men. And there are kind of, you know, issues with some of the technology in terms of how women use it. Um, and they haven't been considered because, you know, women weren't part of the, the planning process. So, for example, uh, Alexa and Siri apparently are very good at telling you what to do if you think you're having a heart attack. Try telling them you've been raped. And they'll say, 
I'm sorry, I don't understand that. Um, now, I tried that about a year ago on Alexa. Uh, whether Alexa has fixed it now, I don't know. Um, uh, she found that, you know, the, the, the Fitbit kind of things that you wear on your, on your wrist, that some of the top brands were very good at going for runs and walks, but when it came to pushing a pram, not so good. Or in terms of measuring calories, uh, you know, lost when you were doing housework. Give you another example from a, a company I spoke to in Britain, a gas company, I won't name it. But one of the things they found is that they, as part of the contract with the government, they, they need to service people's boilers and reach certain service targets. And, you know, Britain is now an increasingly diverse population. And there was, you know, one part of that community um, where they were struggling to meet targets, so particularly in the, the Muslim community. The man was out at, at work during the day. The woman is home. The average gas boiler person in Britain, you can imagine, he drives a white van. He's a he, he's a man, you know. And he's not allowed in the, in the house when the woman's home alone. So they'd have to come home and do, you know, call-outs in the evenings and the weekends and paying overtime and causing uh, issues around, you know, rostering. And so they kind of thought, well, you know, if we can employ more uh, Muslim boiler people, and, and particularly female ones, you know, we can help resolve that problem. So, you know, if you think about them going out to market, well, we need a certain number of intake of, of, of people to train as apprentices, but we need to target, you know, a certain group. Can we get some uh, people from these these diverse backgrounds? Because we have a business need for that. Uh, so you can see those, you know, examples where actually a diverse workforce, you know, not only gives you, you know, um, maybe makes least a bit of decisions, but actually reflects your customer base and, you know, kind of gives you insights into what actually what do our customers and our clients want. Yeah, and I think where you notice this the most, I suppose, is in leadership ranks. I mean, you've seen, you've read them more than I have, but they can actually pretty much picture or visualize most corporate leaders, particularly those that lead a big um, company, an S&P 500 company or, or a FTSE company. Essentially, they are mid-50s, they're over six foot, they've got silver hair, <laughs> they went to a particular College, uh, obviously, you know, the Ivy League of the US and, and potentially Oxbridge University in the UK. And, and, you know, they can literally kind of put a name on them. So so we, we do have this sense that even despite everything, the social change, the, the social disruption of the last few decades, leaders are kind of coming from a very small, narrow pool, which is fine if you're in that pool. Can you give us any sense, Colm, of, of is, is that the kind of stuff you're picking up even now, that, that it is a very small phalanx of people often with the same personality type as well on top of the other things that i've i've got to laid out there yeah and there's certainly a lot of research on that and we, and we know as you described you know you, that picture you described i mean you know it's 15 percent of american men are over six foot tall but um almost 60 percent of corporate ceos are over six foot tall you know what what does height <laughs> have to do with being a good ceo but you know that clearly that carries height carries some sort of yes and i have a personal grievance on this front myself so i should declare that <laughs> a heightly challenge yes exactly there's a great article in the Harvard Business Review uh, called um, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Um, I, I asked my students to read it. And I, the male students, I said, you know, you have to have a thick skin when you read this because it's really quite pointed and sharp. But it, they argued uh, that there's an inability to distinguish between confidence and competence. We assume confident people are competent and men are more likely to display confidence. And hence, we are fooled into believing that they make better leaders. Um, so the authors of the study had you know, carried out uh, research on thousands of managers across all sectors and in 40 countries, and they found that men are more consistently arrogant, man manipulative, and risk-prone than women. Um, 
Now, they also point to research that shows the best leaders are humble and they inspire followers to set aside their own agendas and, and work for the good of the team. You know, very different attributes. Uh, women leaders are more likely to elicit respect and um, pride from their followers. They're more likely to communicate their vision more effectively. Uh, they empower and mentor subordinates. They approach problem solving in a more flexible and creative way. Um, they have much higher levels of emotional intelligence. Um, so they concluded that paradoxically, what it takes to get the job is the reverse of what it takes to do the job well. Um, and as a result, too many incompetent people are promoted to management jobs and they're promoted over more competent people. Um, and what, what's the reason? Are we talking testosterone here? <laughs> what's, what's behind this liking of this type of... You know, they're not really sure why. And, and studies show that both men and women kind of sort of rate these characteristics highly. Okay. And it's interesting, it was a study, a large, uh, just done last year, a large retailer a chain in the US was looking at this, why weren't women promoted to senior positions as much as their male counterparts? And you see that at, the, at entry level, 56% of women, in re, of, of, sorry, of entry level workers are women. And at each level, it goes down and down until you get to district managers, only 14% are women. And what they found was that the, the women actually perform more highly on their job than men. But then there's a score of uh, leadership potential, you know, which is a very subjective thing, and men score more highly on that. So people rate, rate men more highly. And they, they, when they talk to, to people, well, what makes, uh, you know, what is this leadership potential? They talked about assertiveness, uh, charisma, ambition, execution skills, you know, all highly subjective and very much stereotypically associated with male leaders. Um, and the higher you went up the organisation, the lower the score women receive for leadership potential uh, relative to their actual performance of doing the job. Fascinating, yeah. It's so it, it's 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 sort of like a shop window, but but not many people are interested in, in in how the goods work when you get them. It's it's what's there in front of them. Yeah, it's a. Uh... We also we also know that when women display the same characteristics as men, they get judged very differently. Well, we've we've seen that in various uh, political situations, halfway context. That we don't have we don't have time to go into at the moment. Well, listen, it's a great, interesting conversation. I said on the practical front, companies need to be aware of what's happening over the month of June, taking that snapshot, uh, and maybe we'll have you back on a future podcast to give us a sense column of how it's all working and how it's all filtering out and the early indications of whether the system is making a difference or is it a sort of a more of a long haul type of thing. It's a fascinating that a, a brief conversation, a horrific conversation really, but that you had back in your hotel days has sparked all these uh, various developments and research you've been involved in. But it's been a fascinating conversation. I said, this is a long haul, so we definitely think we'll need to talk to you again. But for now, thank you very much for taking part in the conversation. That's Professor Colin McLaughlin. He's Professor of Employment Relations at UCD School of Business. Thanks very much for coming on today's episode. Thanks, Emmett. Good to chat to you. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of David Corscadden, Ed Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music